welcome to another episode of the podcast now. I'm Brian Garlock, and today I was going to have a guest, but we decided it might be better not to, and discuss maybe a topic that seems to be slowly coming out of the closet, uh, but is still a little bit tab- taboo, at least at this part of the, uh, in this neck of the woods. It's uh, having a LGBTQ child in the home and uh, it being an LDS home. Uh, I've worked with quite a few of these now. Understand that I'm not gay. I'm, I don't have any idea what it would be like. Uh, I can only imagine that growing up, especially in this community, that that would be extremely tough. Um, I also think it'd be tough for the parents. Uh, there's no book on this, and there's no, you know, your average parent out there is, you know, has basically it's whole his whole life, his her whole life thought about the little old Navy family that they were going to have, where they all dressed up on the Fourth of July and went out to the parades, and and everything turned out perfect. You know, the kids grew up and worked at the grocery store, and then they married the return missionary, and then they. Well, what's, what ends up happening when you have one of your children come up and say, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, I'm bisexual, I'm pansexual, I'm, you know, there's a lot of different names nowadays and issues, and what do parents do? I empathize with them strongly because when I grew up, and I'm, I'm probably the age of the majority of the parents that are dealing with teenagers right now, who are coming out and talking about it. So I understand what that age group was like to grow up with. And it wasn't something that we talked about much, and it wasn't something that you heard about much. I don't know if it was going on as much as it is now. I can't imagine that something has changed, so I would imagine that the majority of those people kept it a secret, which is really sad, and I can't even imagine how difficult. But So, with all of that said... Probably the first thing that I get asked the most is I usually before I start meeting with one of the uh, with a client I always meet with the parents first and the probably the most typical response I get from parents is do you think he's just do you think she's just trying to fit in do you think that they are wanting to um, be a part of something now. I'm going to admit, I really think that the LGBT community is extremely uh, welcoming and loving and caring, and they do, they really um, have their arms wide open for kids and for people to join, and you know, that's, in so many ways, that's a great thing. Uh, I wish more populations were like that, Um, but the answer I get almost 100% of the time is when I ask a kid, what would you say to somebody who said, are you just trying to get attention? Are you trying to fit in a group? Uh, pretty much the unanimous response is, why would I choose this? Uh, it's hard. Uh, the, the group of potential dates is so much smaller. The actual group is so much smaller. The lifestyle, especially around this 
uh, part of the state or the state period. Uh, why would I choose that? <laughs> that makes so much sense. Uh, why not try to become fit in with another group that didn't have such a difficult uh, didn't have such a difficult road ahead of them. I can't say enough that I don't think anybody who's born gay or bisexual, whatever, I don't think that there's anything broken with them. And we'll get into that in a minute. But So when I started working with, with this issue, it's kind of sad. Uh, way back when, when we were working with sex offenders, we were doing something that was called arousal reconditioning. You probably see that on the news a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a, um, they're trying to reprogram arousals. And uh, I've, I've heard that some people use electric shock. Uh, we didn't use that when we were um, helping sex offenders kind of take their arousal from something deviant to healthy. Uh, we were using ammonia capsules, which, so the client would go through a test that would kind of determine what their deviant arousal was. Then they would go on to write uh, different scripts. And I'm blowing through this because I don't know that it really matters a ton. But they would write these scripts that tied into what their deviant arousal was. So it would be kind of a story form where they would go and read it. And as they would become turned on by something, they would take a hit of that ammonia capsule. They'd break it and sniff it. So basically what we were trying to do is tie a negative response to a negative arousal, a deviant arousal. And then uh, they would also write a script that had to do with aversive, the, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, your parents find out the whole, uh, whatever. I mean, it, those, in my opinion, were probably the weakest part of the whole thing. But then they'd write a healthy script. Um, something with Somebody with the age-appropriate, consensual, all that stuff. And the idea behind it all was to bring down the deviant arousal and raise the 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 uh healthy arousal now did we do that with uh gay clients um i'm gonna say yes in the way that these clients knew how to do it they knew what they were doing and if they wanted to do uh that then they could have so i don't know that it was ever pushed I know that they came to us at times and would say, listen, I've been living at a group home for two years. I'm starting to feel like all my arousal is, is, is turning towards boys. What can I do? And, you know, in a pretty basic terms, we'd say, well, what do you do to try to get rid of your arousal with your um, to little kids or to rape or whatever? So they kind of got the gist of it. Um, I know that there were places that did a lot more aggressive type. Uh, they would do electric shock therapy, and it was all tied to their arousal of same sex. Um, so anyways, I, I, that is so old school. That is, uh, in a lot of ways, I think, abusive. And I don't know that the physical part is more abusive, or the I'm not really sure, or the emotional or uh, psychological support because I can only imagine if they were hooking me up to a machine that zapped me every time I had an urge or a feeling uh, I, I think I would probably feel broken but anyway uh, following that 
stint of doing this kind of work, I went on and I kind of came up with this, my own little theory that I'd thought about without any, without any feedback from um, any of my clients that were gay or bisexual. And it went kind of like this. I had them rate uh, a 1 to 10. What happiness, like for example, a 1 would be absolutely can't move on, suicidal, disaster life. 10 would be couldn't get any better. Overall happiness. It's just like, you know, I'm feeling good. My body works good. My family's close. My Whatever that scenario is, I had them think about that. And then and then we would go off a 1 to 10 kind of a um we would go off of a 1 to 10 rating scale of of kind of what their highest arousal was. So let's say a 16-year-old girl, her highest was to a 16-year-old girl with blonde hair and blue eyes and 5'10 and whatever, athletic build. So they would take that and they would say, okay, that's my 10. And living with her in complete happiness and in this world uh, together and having kids would be my perfect 10. Well, then I asked them to, to kind of say, well, if you did end up with that girl, same sex, marriage, could you really actually live a 10 happiness, especially in this community? Could you pull it off? And most of them would say, probably not. It's hard. It's uh, it's still pretty taboo. A lot of the community wouldn't accept it. And so uh, they wouldn't rate it. They'd rate it like an eight. So um, then I'd ask them, okay, is there a possibility, let's say that you have an arousal to a boy, opposite sex, that you only are aroused to him maybe to a five, but you add in the the no stigma, you add in the uh, much more accepted type of relationship, could that overall happiness go up to an eight? So I hope I'm making this clear. Same sex, got exactly what they wanted as far as a physical part, but only got an eight on overall happiness because of how difficult it would be. Opposite sex would be that they were with somebody who was really only a six, maybe arousal-wise, but living in a community like this would be much easier. And so my theory was that maybe uh, that they could be live an eight happiness as well. To add to all that, I'd talk to him about this. There's very few people who ever end up with their 10 in the first place. Very, very few. Very few people say, I am with the most perfect bodied, um, perfect individual as far as all of my little quirky fantasy stuff. I'm, I'm with them. I, I don't know that very many people. And 100% of those people who are, one day won't. So let's say you married your eight. Well, one day she, if you're a man, she will be a four, three, two. When it comes to what your ideal, ideal um, physical relationship would be like. 
So I dumped that on top of it and to say, okay, so let's say you even did end up with your 10. Let's say you did marry that perfect body. One day, it's not going to be. So it's going to be a five or a six anyway. Um, if a opposite sex body got you up to a five and you could live a happier life because of the community, which one would be better? And so here's my weird, twisted little theory that I had. I thought, well, if everybody's going to end up with a six or a five or whatever on at one point, wouldn't it be easier to live a life that... Um, where you were with the opposite sex and it would be much more seemingly acceptable to the majority of the people, would your overall scale of happiness be closer to a 10 than it would be with same sex? I really felt like I was brilliant coming up with this little theory. I thought um, that it would make these kids think, well, actually, I guess I could... Uh, be with maybe a boy, same sex or same sex girl, and deal with it. And my the rest of my life outside of really being sexually intimate would be a lot better. So maybe I would. And without fail, um, that theory fell right on his face. For one, these kids are saying, "Who told you?" For one, that I would be a six ever to the opposite sex, or a five, or a four. One thing that I wasn't planning on was they talked about, they'd use me for an example. You know, Brian, just because sex for a straight person is, um, I think sex between a straight person, they think it's not just all about sex. It's about being together, holding hands, uh, the the love and care between them isn't just all about sex. And, and you know, it's something I learned quite a bit. I always thought, why are they making such a big deal about, you know, such a small aspect of life, which is sex is, I mean, how often is a human having sex and can they live a happier life with that not being the most ideal situation in the world? Well, anyway, they... <laughs> Needless to say, they blew that right out of the water, made made it very clear to me it isn't all about sex. And and we don't have some buried five in there where we think, okay, I guess I could could have a relationship with somebody who's opposite sex. They it I guess in every way that I tried to explain it, my perfect little theory my theory, I actually named it Deal With Your Six because we're all going to end up with a six, whether you started with a 10 or started with a six. And, and anyway, it fell very flat. And I actually felt really bad when I explained that to some kids because it did make them feel like, hmm, he might think I'm broken too if, if he's telling me what I want and what some of my desires are are so far off that I couldn't live as happy of a life. I mean, I, I feel like I did my best to explain. I wasn't being judgmental. I wasn't trying to push them any direction. I just wanted to do a math problem that I had come up with that basically wanted to see if it was possible or not. 
uh, and I learned a lot from them. Um, I was thinking if I had a LGBT kid, how would I respond and how would I deal with it? And, and I actually know how I would, even though I've never gone through it before. And that would be love them as much as I do the rest of my kids because, you know, let's say I have a kid with diabetes. Let's say I have another one who's seven feet tall. And then let's say I have one with special needs. Maybe I have a friend who's got a Down syndrome young boy who is just basically the funnest, happiest little boy. He still doesn't talk. He's uh, he's around 18 years old. Um, but that family, if you were to say that they don't love him as much as any of the other kids, you'd be crazy. So you take those three different kind of... That You know, like they don't fit the typical Old Navy shirts at the parade. You've got a seven-footer who obviously is going to become seven feet when he's... So he's a foot and a half taller than everybody in elementary school and two feet taller than everybody in junior high and high school. And that'd be difficult. There, I mean, in a lot of ways, it'd be fun, but it wouldn't be the typical thing that you were... Um, thinking that would happen. Same thing with the diabetic. They, you know, they have special medications and special way of living that they have to be careful with. And then you take a special needs kid. So you take those three kids, and I, th- I find it fascinating that we worry so much about. Well, can this? We worry so much about all these little. Um, Things that don't matter. For example, if anybody said, tell me how the baptism was for your Down syndrome young boy. Oh, he didn't get baptized. Why not? Well, he didn't really need to. How come? Well, because he um, probably wouldn't understand what was going on. Probably didn't. He was born. He was born with something that kept him from really even needing it. Same with the temple. Well, tell me what the difference between some youngster that is born with a, an attraction to somebody of their same sex. What's the difference? They were born with it. So uh, is somebody trying to say that these special needs kids were born with something that kept them from needing to go get baptized, yet the LGBTQ community for some reason, is in a different boat. Because I don't think that's how it's going to work. Um, but that's uh, definitely my opinion. Take the other take the other two, the seven-footer and the diabetic. I can only imagine. I've talked to... Um, I have a co-worker who's gay, and when he was young, the whole stake had a fast for him to not be gay anymore. And he would pray, and he would pray, and he would pray, and he would wake up the day after the fast, and obviously nothing changed. But he definitely still felt broken, like a failure, like uh, like why is God continuing to let me be like this? Well, if we had a fast for the seven-footer to be five feet, would he wake up shrunk? What about a diabetic? What about a special needs? We, we don't... I can only imagine if I was one of those kids 
And my parents sat me down and said, you are so messed up that we need to have a fast for you, that we need to get this whole community behind and ask God to fix you. Um, I can't imagine something more damaging to anybody than to do that. Uh, I'm not saying that being gay is like a, a negative thing, like a diabetic. I'm saying it's something that these kids can't control, that they didn't choose and that they were born with and that we need to wrap our head around that somehow because we're having a lot of kids out there killing themselves when they're feeling like their natural born desires are so bad that they're shunned the way they are and treated the way they are to to the point that they're killing themselves we've got a major problem um i think that uh, back to my example of the <clears throat> three different types uh, of children. I think if any of us parents look at our kids, we would say, I wasn't planning on that, or I did not know I was going to have to parent a kid with ADHD, or I didn't know I was going to have to parent a kid with such a fireball, or so, um, or, or too driven even, or too lazy, or whatever. How do you parent them? How do you parent all of these different, well, I think number one, you make kids feel like they're not broken because they're not. Nobody makes a Down syndrome kid feel like he's broken. Nobody does. Everybody understands that. Nobody looks at a seven foot tall guy and thinks he's broken because in our community, that guy's going to be a multimillionaire being able to stuff a ball in a hoop. Um, Diabetic, people are born with it all the time. You don't look at them as broken. You look at them as they've got a challenge that they're going to have to deal with their entire life. With blue eyes, if you had a fast to change your eyes to brown, I'd love to see how many of those ever got changed. Um, I am trying to hold back my frustration when it comes to this whole thing because these kids are lost and they're extremely sad. And if you look at them in the LDS community, they feel like they're on a dead-end road. Yeah, they feel like when something's going to have to change, isn't it? Something's going to have to pop. They're driving along in life as maybe a bisexual or a gay kid. They're following the law of chastity, just like any straight kid would, through the Mormon uh, faith and following those rules. But one day, what's going to happen? What is the end result of it all? What is going to happen to these kids when they decide to start a relationship? They're at a point where they either need to choose one or the other. And parents are at a point where they need to choose one or the other. And I'm telling you this, and this is with everything I can say, I don't, I'm not speaking for the church and I'm not trying to pretend like I understand uh, the reasons they come up with the way, the, the decisions they make, but you choose your kid and you make that kid feel like you would that Down syndrome kid, that seven foot kid, that diabetic kid, that blue eyed kid, that smart kid, the ADHD kid, that you take them and love them. And help them and support them. When they're out fighting in this world to find their way. And when they're feeling all alone, they need to look back and say. One thing they need to say is, I have a corner. 
and my dad's in my corner and my mom's in my corner and my siblings in my corner and if they don't if they feel like they're an embarrassment if they feel like that uh, the family is looking at them as they're broken and they walk into these tough alone situations um, don't be surprised at the negative outcomes that are going to come including suicide because I would bet that there's a lot of parents out there that are regretting the route that they took and that was to make their kid feel like something was wrong with them to the point that the kid ended his life ended his or her life so the title of this you know is how to raise a kid in the lgbt community as an lds parent and i would say that the answer would be just like you would raise any other kid with love with caring and with as best as you can understanding. Um, I've said this in other podcasts before. People worry way too much about whether or not they handled a situation right where they said the right words or where they said the right the length of if they followed Dale Carnegie and his books or whatever. Kids need to look back and say, my parents did their best. They fumbled around. They didn't know how to say things very well. They tried their hardest, though, and they loved me. And that right there, when you get to that point, it's time to maybe, if you need to move on to some some more help, then go for it. But until you get to that point where your kid feels absolutely loved, the same as all the rest of your kids, or the same as um, your spouse, then then you can move on to the next step if, if there need be. And I would I would bet that in most cases there wouldn't be a need. So, at the end of the day, love them, accept them, and make them feel exactly how they are, and that is not broken. All right, till next time, signing off.